History of England, Chapter Ten, Part Ten. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gemma Blythe. History of England from the Accession of James the Second by Thomas Babington Macaulay, Chapter Ten, Part Ten. On the twenty-eighth. The Commons resolved themselves into a committee of the whole House, a member who had, more than thirty years before, been one of the Cromwell's lords, Richard Hamden, son of the illustrious leader of the Roundheads, and father of the unhappy man who had, by large bribes and degrading submissions, narrowly escaped with life from the vengeance of James, was placed in the chair, and the great debate began. It was soon evident that an overwhelming majority considered James as no longer king. Gilbert Dolben, son of the late Archbishop of York, was the first who declared himself to be of that opinion. He was supported by many members, particularly by the bold and vehement Wharton, by Sawyer, whose steady opposition to the dispensing power had, in some measure, atoned for old offences, by Maynard, whose voice, though so feeble with age that it could not be heard on distant benches, still commanded the respect of all parties, and by Summers, whose luminous eloquence and varied stores of knowledge were on that day exhibited for the first time within the walls of Parliament. The unblushing forehead and voluble tongue of Sir William Williams were found on the same side. Already he had been deeply concerned in the excesses both of the worst of oppositions and the worst of governments. He had persecuted innocent papists and innocent Protestants, he had been the patron of Oates and the tool of Petrie. His name was associated with seditious violence, which was remembered with regret and shame by all respectable Whigs, and with freaks of despotism abhorred by all respectable Tories. How men live under such infamy it is not easy to understand. But even such infamy was not enough for Williams. He was not ashamed to attack the fallen master to whom he had hired himself out for work, which no honest man in the inns of court would undertake, and from whom he had, within six months, accepted a baronetcy as the reward of civility. Only three members ventured to oppose themselves to what was evidently the general sense of the assembly. Sir Christopher Musgrave, a Tory gentleman of great weight and ability, hinted some doubts. Heneage Finch let fall some expressions which were understood to mean that he wished a negotiation to be opened with the king. This suggestion was so ill-received that he made haste to explain it away. He protested that he had been misapprehended. He was convinced that under such a prince there could be no security for religion, liberty, or property. To recall King James or to treat with him would be a fatal course but many who would never consent that he should exercise the regal power had conscientious scruples about depriving him of the royal title. There was one expedient which would remove all difficulties, a regency. This proposition found so little favour that Finch did not venture to demand a division. Richard Fanshaw, Viscount Fanshaw of the Kingdom of Ireland, said a few words in behalf of James and recommended an adjournment. But the recommendation was met by a general outcry. Member after member stood up to represent the importance of dispatch. Every moment, it was said, was precious. The public anxiety was intense. 
trade was suspended. The minority sullenly submitted and suffered the predominant party to take its own course. What that course would be was not perfectly clear, for the majority was made up of two classes. One class consisted of eager and vehement Whigs, who, if they had been able to take their own course, would have given to the proceedings of the convention a decidedly revolutionary character. The other class admitted that a revolution was necessary, but regarded it as a necessary evil, and wished to disguise it as much as possible under the show of legitimacy. The former class demanded a distinct recognition of the right of subjects to dethrone bad princes. The latter class desired to rid the country of one bad prince, without promulgating any doctrine which might be abused for the purpose of weakening the just and salutary authority of future monarchs. The former class dwelt chiefly on the king's misgovernment, the latter on his flight. The former class considered him as having forfeited his crown, the latter as having resigned it. It was not easy to draw up any form of words which would please all whose assent it was important to obtain. But, at length, out of many suggestions offered from different quarters, a resolution was framed which gave general satisfaction. It would move that King James II, having endeavoured to subvert the constitution of the kingdom by breaking the original contract between king and people, and by the advice of Jesuits and other wicked persons, having violated the fundamental laws and having withdrawn himself out of the kingdom, had abdicated the government, and that the throne had thereby become vacant. This resolution has been many times objected to criticism, as minute and severe as was ever applied to any sentence written by man, and perhaps there never was a sentence written by man which would bear such criticism less, that a king, by grossly abusing his power, may forfeit, it is true, that a king who absconds without making any provision for the administration, and leaves his people in a state of anarchy, may, without any violent straining of language, be said to have abdicated his functions, is also true. But no accurate writer would affirm that long-continued misgovernment and desertion, added together, make up an act of abdication. It is evident, too, that the mention of the Jesuits and other evil advisers of James weakens, instead of strengthening the case against him, for surely more indulgence is due to a man misled by pernicious counsel than to a man who goes wrong from the mere impulse of his own mind. It is idle, however, to examine these memorable words as we should examine a chapter of Aristotle or of Hobbes. Such words ought to be considered not as words but as deeds. If they affect that which they are intended to affect, they are rational, though they may be contradictory. If they fail of attending their end, they are absurd, though they carry demonstration with them. Logic admits of no compromise. The essence of politics is compromise. It is therefore not strange that some of the most important and most useful political instruments in the world should be among the most illogical compositions that ever were penned. The object of Summers, of Maynard, and of the other eminent men who shaped the celebrated motion was not to leave to posterity a model of definition and partition, but to make the restoration of a tyrant impossible, and to place on the throne a sovereign under whom law and liberty might be secure. This object they attained by using language which, in a philosophical treatise, 
would justly be reprehended as inexact and confused. They cared little whether their major agreed with their conclusion, if the major secured two hundred votes and the conclusion two hundred more. In fact, the one beauty of the resolution is its inconsistency. There was a phrase for every subdivision of the majority. The mention of the original contract gratified the disciples of Sydney. The word abdication conciliated politicians of a more timid school. There were doubtless many fervent Protestants who were pleased with the censure cast on the Jesuits. To the real statesmen the single important clause was that which declared the throne vacant, and if that clause could be carried, he cared little by what preamble it might be introduced. The force which was thus united made all resistance hopeless. The motion was adopted by the committee without a division. It was ordered that the report should be instantly made. Raoul returned to the chair. The mace was laid on the table. Hampton brought up the resolution. The House instantly agreed to it, and ordered him to carry it to the Lords. On the following morning the Lords assembled early. The benches both of the spiritual and of the temporal peers were crowded. Hampton appeared at the bar, and put the resolution of the Commons into the hands of Halifax. The upper house then resolved itself into a committee, and Danby took the chair. The discussion was soon interrupted by the reappearance of Hampton with another message. The House resumed, and was informed that the Commons had just voted it inconsistent with the safety and welfare of this Protestant nation to be governed by a Popish king. To this resolution, irreconcilable as it obviously was with the doctrine of indefeasible hereditary right, the peers gave an immediate and unanimous assent. The principle which was thus affirmed has always, down to our own time, been held sacred by all Protestant statesmen, and has never been considered by any reasonable Roman Catholic as objectionable. If indeed our sovereigns were, like the presidents of the United States, mere civil functionaries, it would not be easy to vindicate such a restriction. But the headship of the English church is annexed to the English crown, and there is no intolerance in saying that a church ought not to be subjected to a head who regards her as schismatical and heretical. After this short interlude, the lords again went into committee. The Tories insisted that their plan should be discussed before the vote of the Commons which declared the throne vacant was considered. This was conceded to them, and the question was put whether a regency, exercising kingly power during the life of James in his name, would be the best expedient for preserving the laws and liberties of the nation. The contest was long and animated. The chief speakers in favor of a regency were Rochester and Nottingham. Halifax and Danby led the other side. The primate, strange to say, did not make his appearance, though earnestly importuned by the Tory peers to place himself at their head. His absence drew on in many contumelious censures, nor have even his eulogists been able to find any explanation of it which raises his character. The plan of regency was his own. He had, a few days before, in a paper written with his own hand, pronounced that plan to be clearly the best that could be adopted. The deliberations of the lords who supported that plan had been carried on under his roof. His situation made it his clear duty to declare publicly what he thought. Nobody can suspect him of personal cowardice or of vulgar cupidity. It was probably from a nervous fear of doing wrong that, at this great conjuncture, he did nothing 
but he should have known that, situated as he was, to do nothing was to do wrong. A man who is too scrupulous to take on himself a grave responsibility at an important crisis ought to be too scrupulous to accept the place of first minister of the church and first peer of the realm. It is not strange, however, that Sandcroft's mind should have been ill at case, for he could hardly be blind to the obvious truth that the scheme which he had recommended to his friends was utterly inconsistent with all that he and his brethren had been teaching during many years. That the king had a divine and indefeasible right to the regal power, and that the regal power, even when most grossly abused, could not without sin be resisted, was the doctrine in which the Anglican Church had long gloried. Did this doctrine then really mean only that the king had a divine and indefeasible right to have his effigy and name cut on a seal, which was to be daily employed in despite of him, for the purpose of commissioning his enemies to levy war on him, and of sending his friends to the gallows for obeying him? Did the whole duty of a good subject consist in using the word king? If so, Fairfax at Naseby and Bradshaw and the High Court of Justice had performed all the duty of good subjects, for Charles had been designated by the generals who commanded against him, and even by the judges who condemned him as king. Nothing in the conduct of the long parliament had been more severely blamed by the church than the ingenious device of using the name of Charles against himself. Every one of her ministers had been required to sign a declaration condemning as traitorous the fiction by which the authority of the sovereign had been separated from his person. Yet this traitorous fiction was now considered by the primate and by many of his Africans as the only basis on which they could, in strict conformity with Christian principles, erect a government. The distinction which Sancroft had borrowed from the roundheads of the preceding generation subverted from the foundation that system of politics which the church and the universities pretended to have learned from St. Paul. The Holy Spirit, it has been a thousand times repeated, had commanded the Romans to be subject to Nero. The meaning of the precept now appeared to be only that the Romans were to be called Nero Augustus. They were perfectly at liberty to chase him beyond the Euphrates, to leave him a pensioner on the bounty of the Parthians, to withstand him by force if he attempted to return, to punish all who aided him or corresponded with him, and to transfer the tribunitian power and the consular power, the presidency of the senate and the command of the legions to Garba or Vespasian. The analogy which the archbishop imagined that he had discovered between the case of a wrong-headed king and the case of a lunatic king will not bear a moment's examination. It was plain that James was not in that state of mind in which, if he had been a country gentleman or a merchant, any tribunal would have held him incapable of executing a contract or a will. He was of unsound mind only as all bad kings are of unsound mind, as Charles I had been of unsound mind when he went to seize the five members, as Charles II had been of unsound mind when he concluded the Treaty of Dover. If this sort of mental unsoundness did not justify subjects in withdrawing their obedience from princes, the plan of a regency was evidently indefensible. If this sort of mental unsoundness did justify subjects in withdrawing their obedience from princes, 
the doctrine of non-resistance was completely given up, and all that any moderate Whig had ever contended for was fully admitted. As to the oath of allegiance, about which Sancroft and his disciples were so anxious, one thing at least was clear, that whoever might be right, they were wrong. The Whigs held that, in the oath of allegiance, certain conditions were implied, that the king had violated these conditions, and that the oath had therefore lost its force. But, if the Whig doctrine were false, if the oath were still binding, could men of sense really believe that they escaped the guilt of perjury by voting for a regency? Could they affirm that they bore true allegiance to James while they were in defiance of his protestations made before all Europe, authorizing another person to receive the royal revenues, to summon and prorogue parliaments, to create dukes and earls, to name bishops and judges, to pardon offenders, to command the forces of the state, and to conclude treaties? with foreign powers, had Pascal been able to find, in all the folios of the Jesuitical casuists, a sophism more contemptible than that which now, as it seemed, sufficed to quiet the consciences of the fathers of the Anglican Church. Nothing could be more evident than that the plan of regency could be defended only on Whig principles. Between the rational supporters of that plan and the majority of the House of Commons, there could be no dispute as to the question of right. All that remained was a question of expediency. And would any statesman seriously contend that it was expedient to constitute a government with two heads, and to give to one of those heads regal power without regal dignity, and to the other regal dignity without regal power? It was notorious that such an arrangement, even when made necessary by the infancy or insanity of a prince, had serious disadvantages, that times of regency were times of weakness, of trouble, and of disaster. Was a truth proved by the whole history of England, of France, and of Scotland, and had almost become a proverb. Yet, in a case of infancy or of insanity, the king was at least passive. He could not actively counterwork the regent. What was now proposed was that England should have two first magistrates, of ripe age and sound mind, waging with each other an irreconcilable war. It was absurd to talk of leaving James merely the kingly name and depriving him of all the kingly power, for the name was a part of the power. The word king was a word of conjuration. It was associated in the minds of many Englishmen with the idea of a mysterious character derived from above, and in the minds of almost all Englishmen with the idea of legitimate and venerable authority. Surely, if the title carried with it such power, those who maintain that James ought to be deprived of all power could not deny that he ought to be deprived of the title. And how long was the anomalous government planned by the genius of Sancroft to last? Every argument which could be urged for setting it up at all might be urged with equal force for retaining it, to the end of time. If the boy who had been carried into France was really born of the queen, he would hereafter inherit the divine and indefeasible right to be called king. The same right would very probably be transmitted from papist to papist through the whole of the eighteenth and nineteenth centuries. Both the houses had unanimously resolved that England should not be governed by a papist. It might well be, therefore, 
that from generation to generation regents would continue to administer the government in the name of vagrant and mendicant kings there was no doubt that the regents must be appointed by parliament the effect therefore of this contrivance a contrivance intended to preserve unimpaired the sacred principle of hereditary monarchy would be that the monarchy would become really elective another unanswerable reason was urged against sancroft's plan there was in the statute book a law which had been passed soon after the close of the long and bloody contest between the houses of york and lancaster and which had been framed for the purpose of averting calamities such as the alternate victories of those houses had brought on the nobility and gentry of the realm by this law it was provided that no person should by adhering to a king in possession incur the penalties of treason when the regicides were brought to trial after the restoration some of them insisted that their case lay within the equity of this act they had obeyed they said the government which was in possession and were therefore not traitors the judges admitted that this would have been a good defence if the prisoners had acted under the authority of a usurper who like henry the fourth and richard the third bore the regal title but declared that such a defence could not avail men who had indicted sentenced and executed one who in the indictment in the sentence and in the death warrant was designated as king it followed therefore that whoever should support a regent in opposition to james would run great risk of being hanged drawn and quartered if ever james should recover supreme power but that no person could without such a violation of law as jeffreys himself would hardly venture to commit be punished for siding with a king who was reigning though wrongfully at whitehall against a rightful king who was in exile at saint germain it should seem that these arguments admit of no reply and that they were doubtless urged with force by danby who had a wonderful power of making every subject which he treated clear to the dullest mind and by halifax who in fertility of thought and brilliancy of diction had no rival among the orators of that age yet so numerous and powerful were the tories in the upper house that notwithstanding the weakness of their case the defection of their leader and the ability of their opponents they very nearly carried the day a hundred lords divided forty-nine voted for a regency fifty-one against it in the minority with the natural children of charles the brothers-in-law of james the dukes of somerset and ormond the archbishop of york and eleven bishops no prelate voted in the majority except compton and trelawney it was near nine in the evening before the house rose the following day was the thirtieth of january the anniversary of the death of charles i the great body of the anglican clergy had during many years thought it a sacred duty to inculcate on that day the doctrines of non-resistance and passive obedience their old sermons were now of little use and many divines were even in doubt whether they could venture to read the whole liturgy the lower house had declared that the throne was vacant the upper had not yet expressed any opinion it was therefore not easy to decide whether the prayers for the sovereign ought to be used every officiating minister took his own course in most of the churches of the capital the petitions for james were omitted but at st margaret's shop dean of norwich who had been requested to preach before the commons 
not only read to their faces the whole service as it stood in the book, but before his sermon, implored in his own words a blessing on the king, and towards the close of his discourse, declaimed against the Jesuitical doctrine that princes might lawfully be deposed by their subjects. The speaker, that very afternoon, complained to the house of this affront. You pass a vote one day, he said, and on the next day it is contradicted from the pulpit in your own hearing. Sharp was strenuously defended by the Tories, and had friends even among the Whigs, for it was not forgotten that he had incurred serious danger in the evil times by the courage with which, in defiance of the royal injunction, he had preached against popery. Sir Christopher Musgrave very ingeniously remarked that the House had not ordered the resolution, which declared the throne vacant, to be published. Sharp, therefore, was not only not bound to know anything of that resolution, but could not have taken notice of it without a breach of privilege, for which he might have been called to the bar and reprimanded on his knees. The majority felt that it was not wise at that conjuncture to quarrel with the clergy, and the subject was suffered to drop. While the commons were discussing Sharp's sermon, the lords had again gone into a committee on the state of the nation, and had ordered the resolution which pronounced the throne vacant to be read, clause by clause. The first expression on which a debate arose was that which recognized the original contract between king and people. It was not to be expected that the Tory peers would suffer a phrase which contained the quintessence of Whiggism to pass unchallenged. A division took place, and it was determined by fifty-three votes to forty-six that the words should stand. The severe censure passed by the Commons on the administration of James was next considered, and was approved without one dissentient voice. Some verbal objections were made to the proposition that James had abdicated the government, it was urged that he might more correctly be said to have deserted it. This amendment was adopted, it should seem, with scarcely any debate, and without a division. By this time it was late, and the Lords again adjourned. Up to this moment the small body of peers, which was under the guidance of Danby, had acted in firm union with Halifax and the Whigs. The effect of this union had been that the plan of Regency had been rejected and the doctrine of the original contract affirmed. The proposition that James had ceased to be king had been the rallying point of the two parties which had made up the majority, but from that point their path diverged. The next question to be decided was whether the throne was vacant, and this was a question not merely verbal, but of grave practical importance. If the throne was vacant, the estates of the realm might place William in it. If it was not vacant, he could succeed to it only after his wife, after Anne, and after Anne's posterity. End of part 10